This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm joined again by Morrison and Forrester partner James Kukios to talk about the firm's December 2020 International Anti-Corruption Newsletter. We take up the first CFTC FCPA enforcement action. We consider the Patrick Ho conviction and its upheld on the appeal. The Brazilian government announces a five-year ABC enforcement plan. MPP settles car wash enforcement action, and we discuss the ABC reforms introduced in the National Defense Authorization Act. It's a fascinating episode. I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And I'm back with James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forrester, to discuss the firm's always great uh, monthly international anti-corruption newsletter. Today, we're going to take up the December newsletter. So, James, what an incredibly long-winded introduction. First of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me today, Tom. James, in late, uh, I guess not late December, but in December, we had one of the most fascinating FCPA enforcement actions to me, uh, and that was the Vital case. Lots of different uh, interesting facts, but the one I wanted to visit with you about and have wanted to visit with you about is the CFTC compo- uh, component of this. This uh, Vital was energy traders, and part of the bribery allegations were in the trading end of things. They were engaging in deceptive trade, uh, which jacked up the price in the market, but also that they were bribing uh, foreign government officials or rather uh, employees of instrumentalities of national oil companies. And uh, that's been going on in Houston, frankly, a long time. And I've tried to tell people years ago, hey, these traders are potentially, uh, they have FCPA exposure and you need to look at that. But this was the first enforcement action. So I guess I wanted to get your comments on that. And then um, what about the CFTC and, and their involvement in this? Well, Tom, as always, you are very prescient and uh, you, you forecasted that and you got that right. So good job on that one. <laughs> Uh, proved right with this enforcement action. Yeah, it's very interesting that the CFTC has gotten involved in in the foreign bribery enforcement. Um, they announced that they were going to do that back in March of 2019. Um, you know, they announced that that from now on they're going to be uh, a player in the foreign bribery enforcement arena. Um, one thing to clear up, because I hear some people say this sometimes, is um, the CFTC does not enforce the FCPA. So unlike the SEC, which does enforce the FCPA against issuers, um, the CFTC is not enforcing the FCPA itself. What the CFTC is doing is they're enforcing their statute, the Commodity Exchange Act, in terms of how it might um, be impacted by foreign bribery. 
Um, so that just as a technical matter, they're not FCPA enforcers, but they are now foreign bribery enforcers using their own statute. Thank you for so cor- uh, gently correcting me. Yeah, no, you didn't do it. It's actually people that I've I've tried to explain to you before in the past. Um, and it's kind of a technical distinction also. Um, but so, you know, what that means is that the CFTC only gets involved when there's a commodity. Um, so they're not going to be able to be involved in just, you know, FCPA generally. They, they have to have a theory where an act of foreign bribery has impacted a commodity. And in this case, they said that the foreign bribery that was paid by these traders um, harmed market participants, undermined the integrity of the U.S. and global physical and derivatives oil markets, um, uh, and defrauded counterparties as well. So it's very interesting. They they found a way where they they said that this um, affected uh, the commodities markets and so fell in their jurisdiction. Uh, I will say it's been very interesting. You know, when I was at DOJ, um, we obviously worked very closely with the SEC. And if we ever got a call, for example, from an issuer to self-disclose a an FCPA violation, I would always ask, "Have you also called the SEC?" Because we were going to pick up the call, the phone, and call the SEC if they didn't. And most of the time, the answer was, "We're we're about to," um, or "Yes, we have." So, I, you know, there was no situation where I actually had to call the SEC myself. Um, the CFTC now is sort of in that posture as well. Um, they work very closely with the fraud section, both in the um, the market integrity and uh, uh, major frauds unit, where they've done a lot of commodities cases, commodities fraud cases, not involving foreign bribery. And now they're working very closely with the FCPA unit at DOJ as well. And so, unfortunately, now for companies who may have commodities involved in, you know, in their foreign bribery issues, they have, there's another player involved and they have to think, you know, when I call DOJ or when I call SEC, if it's an issuer, do I also need to call the CFTC? And I've had an experience where, um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, there was a self-disclosure to DOJ, and a day later, I got a call from CFTC um, saying, "You know, we, we heard from DOJ that uh, that you, know, you did a self-disclosure. We'd like to hear about this also." So, you know, CFTC is here. They're now involved in the foreign bribery arena, and it's important for companies who who have in the commodities markets who have a potential F, uh, foreign bribery issue to consider the CFTC as well. Now, the good news if there is good news, is that um, the CFTC, like DOJ, essentially announced a, an anti-pilot policy and said that they were going to work together um, with other enforcement authorities to make sure that there wasn't unfair double penalizing. And what we did see in the Vital case was actually, even though on paper it was a $95 million total penalty to be paid to the CFTC, um, they actually, the CFTC actually um, credited um, the DOJ resolution. And so the additional penalty ended up being much smaller than it would than that $95 million number. So it's important if you if you do find yourself in that position to try to you know coordinate those resolutions between CFTC and the other enforcement authorities. So if there is any credit that you can get, um, you make sure that you get that. James, one of the themes I saw in 2020 and overall anti-corruption enforcement was not simply greater cooperation between the Department of Justice and other federal government agencies, but actually uh, additional enforcement actions, or at least contemporaneous enforcement actions. We saw the OCC. We saw the 
New York State Department of Financial Services. We saw the CFTC. We've seen OFAC. Is that a trend that you would see continuing uh, by the Department of Justice and, and now under the Biden administra- administration? For sure. Uh, for sure. I mean, DOJ, I think, has shown itself to be willing to work with other law enforcement authorities or other regulators um, quite a bit. Uh, sometimes the onus, though, is on the company to raise those issues and to ask DOJ for their assistance in doing that. So, um, for example, I was just on a panel with Chris Estero from the um, the head of the FCPA unit at DOJ, and I was asking him about that. And he said, you know, it's really up to the company. If you want to have a coordinated resolution, you should let us know that up front. Um, don't let us know this at the very end. You know, if we've gone three years with you and we're about to resolve with you and then you say, oh, wait, can you also bring in such and such an agency to coordinate this resolution? Um, so as long as the company is thinking about that ahead of time and uh, raises it to DOJ and DOJ has good relationships with those enforcement authorities, um, that is something DOJ will, will, will definitely be interested in doing. It doesn't have those relationships with all enforcement authorities, both domestic and foreign. Um, but to the extent that there is something that DOJ can do about it, they are willing to do that. Gent, we had a uh, individual conviction upheld in the in I believe the Second Circuit, uh, and that was Patrick Ho. And I don't want to say it went under the radar, but it seemed to me to get a lot less play than, for instance, the Hoskins case. But it was equally fascinating from from our law geek perspective. It certainly, I thought, had some interesting issues around jurisdiction. And I was wondering if you could uh, maybe explain this case a little bit for us. I have to agree with you, Tom. I spent a lot of digital ink on this one. Um, that entry is pretty long because it was really packed full of very technical and um, first impression FCPA issues. So I thought it was pretty interesting. It probably didn't help, Tom, that the Second Circuit released it on December 29th. Um, you know, after Christmas, before New Year's, during a pandemic, with the world waiting to see what would happen on January 6th, uh, probably probably didn't help very much. But it really is worth reading if you practice in this space. So long story short, in March of 2019, uh, Patrick Ho, who was an officer and director of a U.S.-based NGO, which was funded by a Chinese energy company, was found guilty of numerous violations of conspiring to violate the FCPA's anti-bribery provisions and the federal money laundering statute, as well as substantive violations. And uh, Ho brought four challenges that I thought were very, very interesting, um, and two specifically related to the FCPA. First, he said um, he was charged um, with um, uh, as being a domestic um, he was charged. So he argued, sorry, let me start over. He said first, the evidence showed only that he was acting to benefit a foreign entity, not the U.S. based NGO that formed the predicate for his conviction under the FCPA's domestic concern provision. And then he argued, and by the way, you can't charge me under both the domestic concern and the territorial jurisdiction provisions of the FCPA um, because those are mutually exclusive. And the Second Circuit re- rejected both arguments. Um, First, the court held that the FCPA does not require a U.S. entity to be the beneficiary of the corruption, but it only requires that the defendant was acting on behalf of a domestic concern to procure business for any person. So here he was allegedly acting for the U.S. NGO to benefit the Chinese entity, 
And the, the court held, you know, as long as you're a domestic working on behalf of the domestic concern and paying bribes, it doesn't really matter who the recipient of that benefit was. And it was okay if it was the Chinese entity, which is very interesting. I mean, that, that does, to be frank, comport with the way that I read the statute. It says on behalf of any person. Um, and so that makes sense, but it was an interesting and novel issue nonetheless. And then, uh, the court held that, uh, the domestic concern jurisdiction and the territorial jurisdiction were not mutually exclusive. So for us geeks, as you call us, Tom, DD2 and DD3 are not mutually exclusive. And here I'll just, I'll quote it because I thought that the second circuit had a really good and, and concise way to explain it. The FCPA's statutory language contains no indication that the provisions are mutually exclusive or that both sections would not cover a director like the defendant in this case, who acts on behalf of both a domestic concern, here the U.S. NGO, and on behalf of a person other than a domestic concern, here the Chinese entity. Nothing in the language of the statute or the Hoskins decision prevents an individual from fitting within more than one of the FCPA's three categories, particularly whereas here that individual acts on U.S. soil on behalf of both domestic and foreign entities. So it's interesting you mentioned the Hoskins decision. That, of course, the argument there was he didn't fit into any of the categories. Here, DOJ alleged that Ho fit into two separate categories, and the court said that was fine. Um, Hoskins doesn't prevent that, and neither does the statute itself. Um, Ho then also raised some pretty interesting um, jurisdictional arguments for the money laundering offenses, um, that we don't need to get into here, but but it was pretty interesting as well. But those those two FCPA questions, I agree with you. They should have got a little more um, attention, and they're very useful to read. James, um, there'd been a, I think um, many people were, were disappointed in the current Brazilian president. They felt like he took the gas, uh, his foot off the gas of the Brazilian prosecutors looking for uh, corruption and bribery in Brazil. But we had an announcement in December that the Brazilian government announced a five-year anti-robbery, anti-corruption plan. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that might be. Very interesting question, Tom, whether this really does signal a, um, a commitment to continue to pursue anti-corruption or, you know, is there maybe something going on behind the scenes? Um, I think it's a little bit mixed. So to set the stage, in early December, the Brazilian government announced a five-year anti-corruption plan. Uh, it adopts recommendations from the UN, the OECD, and the Organization of American States. And the plan's primary objective is to coordinate cooperation among government agencies as they each work to combat corruption. Put a pin in that. I'll come back to that in a minute. The plan is, is um, sets out 142 actions. They cover prevention of corruption, detection of corruption, and fiscal responsibility and accountability. And then it also contains measures related to private sector compliance programs, lobbying and public integrity, whistleblowers, investigations, leniency agreements, and international cooperation, among other measures. Um, you know, in putting out a plan like this, it certainly does see that Brazil is, is going to continue to focus on anti-corruption. Uh, and I think in that regard, we should take it as such. But the one hesitance I have and the, the pin I put in there is that even though this document says that one of the purposes is to coordinate enforcement 
and cooperation among government agencies, it left out the Brazilian Federal Prosecution Service. And that has been the service that really led Operation Car Wash and all the things, um, you know, the all those enforcement actions over the years, which the current Brazilian president is not a fan of. So one could be cynical. You know, is this a way to try to undermine the M- MPF, which has been very successful? Um, or is one to be optimistic to say, you know, this really is a coordinated plan to move forward and continue to pursue anti-corruption in the future? I think it's probably a little mixture of both. Um, but I think the, the main takeaway is we do have to expect that the anti-corruption push in Brazil will continue for at least the next five years in some form or fashion. It sounds like this is one we may revisit in a year or two, James. I think that's right. James, I'm going to end on um, literally something that happened on January 1 of 2021, which was Congress overrode the president's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. And for the anti-corruption compliance community and the AML compliance community, uh, there were significant reforms or amendments, I should say, to the Bank Secrecy Act. And what I was interested in your views is, of course, the Bank Secrecy Act focuses on financial institutions, perhaps financial service companies. There were a couple of others, art dealers, some real estate uh, sellers. But I'm thinking that the reforms, particularly around shell companies and, and ultimate beneficial owners, anonymous ownership, that is really going to inform uh, anti-corruption enforcement all the way down to anti-corruption compliance and specifically even down to due diligence. So I was wondering if if you see this change at, at the highest level around uh, financial institutions and those issues around money laundering maybe as, as a, a, a way that the Department of Justice would start talking about this in the context of FCPA enforcement. Yeah, really interesting. And and just uh, I'll, I'll note, we covered it in our December newsletter because it was actually passed in December. It was vetoed in December, but everybody knew it was going to get overridden. Um, uh, the veto was going to get overridden. So we went ahead and covered it in December. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really it's a really potentially very important um, measure. Um, and, and I love the language that Congress included, by the way, in, in this act. It said um, it is a sense of co- uh, Congress that malign actors seek to conceal their ownership of certain corporations, limited liability companies, and similar entities formed under state law. And then they say to facilitate foreign corruption, money laundering, and other illicit activities. You know, this has been – I think we may have talked about this in the past. I'm sure you've talked about it before. Um, you know, globally, there's been a real outcry against shell corporations and the ease with which um, shell corporations can be formed and the intransparency, the lack of transparency in their true ownership. And it turns out the U.S. is one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to that. Now, there can be all all number of legitimate reasons for forming companies like this. Um, obviously, the fact that you form a company like this is not indicative in itself of anything uh, illegal, um, but they are subject to abuse. And it's very interesting to me that Congress specifically pointed out the use of shell companies formed in the United States to facilitate foreign corruption. So I do think that this is something that, um, you know, the disclosure requirements are probably not going to apply to most big companies. Um, that's really not what this is aimed at. And if you if you go through the act itself, there's criteria of who has to disclose, and and it does really seem to exclude a lot of you know major companies and things like that. 
But you raise a good point. Um, you know, this could provide, for example, new avenues for due diligence. When you're looking into the third parties you're dealing with, if this works, you're going to be able to get a better sense of who you're dealing with. And, you know, this should probably be a new thing that compliance professionals look at when they're doing uh, third party due diligence. Um, you know, we'll see how, how much of a impact it has. Um, it seems like a very good step towards transparency and, and the ability to know who you're dealing with. Um, and so we'll, we'll hope for the best and, and continue to monitor this to see how it's used by companies. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you again. We're going to link to the firm's newsletter in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing what uh, January and February bring. Lots of snow, probably, at least up here in D.C. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication pre-sale of my latest book, the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, published by LexisNexis. It will be published in April. Quite simply, this is the best single-volume, single-author book on compliance programs. The creation, the design, the implementation, and the enhancements of best practices compliance programs are all laid out in this book. If you're in the compliance field, the compliance discipline, this is the book for you, far better than any other book on the market, if I may say so myself. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for pre-sale. There's also a discount. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.